Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening. I'm Nathan Owens. You're listening to That's Truth, and I'm glad that you are sitting across the desk from me. As usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and let me say welcome to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home. Again, this is not just a program for you to hear Pastor teaching, but we covet and look forward to your interaction. The whole program is designed around your interaction. Now, before we jump into a new topic tonight, we have several questions that have come in in relation to, uh, or that have come in for Pastor to answer or to discuss since last week's episode. The first one was a video. It was several minutes long, and rather than have you just listen to the audio and feel left out, I'm just going to summarize for you. It's a video about a Muslim man, I believe it was in Nigeria, who has 86 wives. Yes, you heard me right. 86 wives, 150 children, and his children and wives are quoted as saying that he is a good man and should be allowed to care for his entire family. He says that Allah told him to marry the 86 wives and also claims that Allah did not prescribe in the Quran a punishment for marrying more than four wives. He has been asked to divorce 82 of his wives. Now, Pastor, the listener who sent in the the video says, is this polygamy according to Scripture, and does he have a right to have all of these wives? What are your thoughts, Pastor? Uh, first of all, I, I couldn't believe that something like this was still happening in modern times. I thought this belonged to antiquity maybe uh, certainly a pre-Christian world, but that gives you an idea that this world is still a place of darkness and it's still not governed by biblical principles and we know more than ever living in a post-Christian world. Uh, first of all, I would like to just say that uh, it is very clear when you go to the Scriptures that God's original plan and God's ordained plan for marriage is one man, one woman. That is very, very clear from the book of Genesis. Uh, When God is the one that created marriage, he shows us what marriage was intended to be, and it was to be a monogamous marriage between a male and a female. That's the only biblical and proper definition of what marriage is supposed to be. Polygamy in the Bible began with the rebellion of Cain. It's Cain's sons. That the first uh, bigamist in the Bible that became uh, polygamous. That is mentioned in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16 to 19. So it did not start with Adam 
uh, it started with Cain and his rebellion against God when he went away from the Lord and built the city. And uh, we learn later that uh, his sons followed in his steps. And one of the first sins that they committed basically was to commit bigamy and commit uh, polygamy. Uh, the third thing I would like to say is that, you know, when you look at Bible characters in the Bible who went away from this primal principle of uh, monogamous marriage, uh, people like uh, Abraham, people like um, Elkanah, people like uh, Solomon, uh, these are people that discovered that even within the marriage, it was a dysfunctional family. You can't find one functional family that is operating as it should be in a polygamous marriage in the Bible. It all brought all kinds of trouble. So clearly, uh, it, it is not the ideal. Um, remember that, uh, like Abraham, and uh, certainly he would not have had any moral code. The moral code was written by Moses. So he was dealing according to the, the times, the custom, the social custom of his time. And the Lord seemed to have accommodated that. But people like um, Solomon and, and David, uh, who knew better, these are men that went directly contrary to God's teaching because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, the Lord told them that when they became kings in Israel, they were not to multiply wives. I find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Could you read that for us, please? When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Okay, go ahead with you. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall ye multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold." So the clear, the clear strictures that are given to the king when he became king, and one thing he was not supposed to do clearly, he was not to be polygamous, he's not to multiply wives. And the reason for that, Nathan, is that a lot of these marriages were political marriages. It's almost like if you read the history of England, that they would marry somebody in France or somebody in Italy, and the whole idea was to widen the empire. And a lot of the marriages that Solomon eventually got engaged in and they were political marriage, like marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, et cetera, et cetera. But again, these are people who were living and went contrary to what God said they should do. The other thing I would point out, Nathan, is that even in the Old Testament, most of the godly men had one wife. For example, Adam had one wife, Noah had one wife, Isaac had one wife, Joseph had one wife, Moses had one wife, Boaz had one wife, Job had one wife, Isaiah had one wife, Hosea had one wife. So even if you look at the the anomaly of a few that is mentioned, David, Solomon, and, and um, Jacob, uh, the majority of those people in the Old Testament were monogamous. See? Never heard it from that perspective. Yeah, but it's there. I mean, yeah. it's just because people look at it. People go to Scripture to find an excuse for what they want to do. Right. That's, that's basically what happens. So when they find the word polygamy, 
they want to live a polygamous life. So they just want to find one verse of Scripture that maybe even tolerated it, and that becomes the norm. But they would not go back to find out what was God's intent about marriage. That's what you do. What does God really intend for us as marriage? I mentioned some time ago that all the 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 uh, all the, the historians and philosophers that emphasize the idea of freedom, they all go back to Genesis to say how God made man. Man was designed to be free, not to be enslaved. So, uh, but they do that because they have a purpose. They want liberation, so they find something in Scripture. People want to do something else. They look for another verse of Scripture. Uh, the other thing I would say, Nathan, is that when, in the New Testament. Uh, there is no example of a godly Christian who is polygamous, none whatsoever in the New Testament. So that, sh- again, all the epistles that Paul wrote, etc., etc., there's no example of that. And then the other thing I think is crucially important, Nathan, is Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 to 6. Could you turn there with me, please? Matthew 19, 1 to 6 says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast. 19? This chapter 19? Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. And came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And the great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that which made them at the beginning, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The point I'm making here is that Jesus Christ himself reassert God's ideal, a one man, one woman becoming, the two becoming one as husband and wife. Uh, the man shall uh, leave his father and cling to his wife, not to his wives, to his wife. Our Lord is, is, is reasserting and reconfirming that this is the biblical ideal. This is what God originally intended, and he endorses that. The other thing that Paul's teaching, look at uh, Romans chapter, sorry, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, 3, and 4. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every husband, every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. The point I'm making there is all singular. There's no plurality of husbands and wives, husband having wives and wives having husbands. Uh, again, he's setting forth, and he said to avoid fornication. If you if you are not made to be celibate, you don't have the gift of celibacy, and you find that you have a burning desire for intimacy. Paul is saying the legitimate may, way of meeting that need is to get into a marital relationship. He didn't say go and get three and four different wives. Uh, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Again, is emphasizing monogamy as the fundamental uh, model and ideal that God has uh, for his, uh, his believers. The, the other thing I would say, Nathan, is the fact that the marriage was designed, and we only learned this in the New Testament, ultimately to model the monogamous relationship Christ had with his church. Christ doesn't have many churches. He has one church. He's one husband and he's one wife. And the book of Ephesians tells us very clearly that that was designed to be a model uh, of Christ's relationship to the church. So, 
uh, to answer the the question that was asked on the um, uh, podcast, um, uh, it is clearly not what God intended, and uh, there's no basis uh, whatsoever that we should engage in polygamy today. That is something that belonged to antiquity and ancient times, and it is certainly something that God would abominate. Uh, today and certainly there's no New Testament warrant for it and we as Christians uh, understand what is called progressive revelation that God has progressively revealed his will to us so when we come to the New Testament and we find the, the reaffirmation of this teaching by Christ and then we have our Lord's apostles who, te- who give us further revelation all assert the same thing one man one woman is a monogamous relationship so to this person as a Muslim um, I suppose within the Muslim faith, the uh, Allah said you can have four. Okay, so most. Um, and by the way, Nigeria has over seventy million Muslims, so I'm not too sure how many of them are polygamous. But when they come from that part of Africa and come to the thir- the, the New World, as it were, uh, they like to bring that kind of thinking, that kind of morality, to the Western culture. Uh, we must push back against those kind of practices and we must condemn them and abominate them. Uh, that clearly is evil, it is wrong, it's not God's will. And people who engage in polygamy uh, outside the pale of God's will and uh, will come under divine judgment at some point in time. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a live interactive program. We are live in the studio, and we are looking forward to your interaction this evening. And there's a number of ways you can interact with us. If you have a question, maybe it's a question that someone asked you the other day, and you just aren't really sure that you have a complete firm grasp of how to confidently answer them according to Scripture. Give us a call and ask the question. You can call one 268 462-7420. That's the number that'll put you live on the air. Again, that number is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. I'll give that number to you again. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. You can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then right there in the comment section, comment your question or your suggested topic for a future episode. And we will pass that along to Pastor Murphy. There is another way that you can listen to the program. You can go to wherever you enjoy finding your podcast, whether it's on Google, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcast, or you can just go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see on our website. It's a microphone, big broadcast microphone. You can't miss it. Right in the center of the screen, there is a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And then you will see a list of, I believe it's four different programs that we podcast here on the Radio Lighthouse. And you may be saying, podcast, I'm not familiar with that. Can you explain it? Yes, a podcast just means that we have taken the audio file and we have put it out there as an archive on the internet for you to go and grab, to share with your friends, to put on your phone, to listen at your own time and be able to listen to it multiple times so that you can take notes, write down uh, outlines or principles and listen to it at your convenience. Again, 
That's Truth podcast can be found on our website, radiolighthouse.org. Now, this next question relates to the podcast. It says, Pastor, I recently found the podcast of That's Truth, and I was listening to the SDA episode and found it interesting. Again, if you're listening for the, I'm interrupting this question here, if you have a particular topic that someone has asked you about uh, and you are interested to see, I believe tonight's episode is like 212, 220, well over 200 episodes, and each one of the previous episodes is categorized by title or topic, so you can search for topics and there are many, many topics that have been discussed. Pastors spend time discussing different cults and different religions. Back to the question. Walter Ray was said to be a person who discredited Ellen White. While I don't necessarily believe that Ellen White is a prophet, after a short stint of research, I discovered that Walter disagreed with the Bible on several cases. This allows me to question his stance on Ellen G. White. What do you have to say? Well, I haven't uh, thoroughly investigated this guy, Walter Ware. I do have his book, The White Lay, uh, that he wrote in connection with uh, Ellen G. White. It is very clear that she was not a prophet. Um, I can probably on the program uh, quote some things that she said that were not true. And uh, some things that she said what happened didn't happen. Um, so it's, it's well known. This is all. This is nothing new to, to people. But um, the fact that Mr. Ray has questions about the Bible or other issues uh, does not discredit the facts that he presents. In other words, I've seen the book. I have a book in my possession. All he does basically is to take what Ellen G. Wright wrote, put it on one side of the page, and show you quite clearly where, what were her sources. You can't debate that, and it's all documented. Uh, so it's not it's not um, it's not an attempt to discredit her. She's just using her own writings, her own words. So it has nothing to do with the fact that he might have questioned certain things about the Bible, which I don't know what those things were. But even if he did question certain things, that does not mean that what he wrote uh, in discrediting. Um, White as a prophetess, and to show that she was a plagiarist and not a prophetess, uh, you can't discount that because the evidence is there before your eyes. So that would be my response uh, to him. Now I don't know what other things he's written, and uh, so the fact that you said he questioned the Bible in certain areas, and I'm not too sure what those areas are, I would be concerned about other books he's written and uh, to see exactly how he would have interpreted the Bible. But per se, uh, the documentary evidence is given. It is is there for you to research, for me to research, to look in the book, to see the, the sources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't think that this necessarily discounts him and uh, what he wrote in his discreditation of uh, Mrs. White. Pastor, we have a question that has just come in. Is it wise to entertain someone whom you do not love nor like? I have heard people say that we should marry the person who loves and likes us but I disagree with such a statement. Can you read that again? Because I, yeah. it's a kind of... Is it wise to entertain someone whom you do not love nor like? I have heard people say that we should marry the person who loves and likes us, but I disagree with such a statement. 
Well, I am not too sure what you mean by entertain. That's the problem I'm oh, having. Do you okay. mean hospitality? Do you mean date? Do you mean uh, have a relationship with? So I am not too sure exactly what the person is referring to. Um, if it means somebody you don't like or somebody dislike you and is a Christian, you must, uh, the Bible calls for hospitality and entertainment. So you don't always have people at your home, if you're hospital, that you necessarily like. They might be a believer in the church that you don't particularly fond of, but uh, maybe it's an occasion for you to get to know them by entertaining them and, and, and showing them hospitality. Now, if you're mean about dating now, I don't know why anybody would date somebody they don't like or they don't love, so that, that, that seems to me problematic. Um, there must be some kind of emotional attachment to the person that you're going to marry or you, you're going to fall in love with. It cannot be a, a cold case where you just statistically or just words. Uh, there has to be something that is a pull there, and normally that pull is some attraction has to be there. Um, we are not animals that just go by smell. But isn't uh, that what arranged marriages are? Was that well? Arranged marriage is, is uh, I agree with that. But arranged marriage normally is that the father, the parents, um, look for somebody for their uh, daughter or their son, and that was pretty much the custom in the Old Testament days. Um, uh, <laughs> I I would I would say about that. I don't think that any. Uh, for example, take um, when Isaac was searching for. What Abraham searching for what and he sent his uh, servant. Right. Right. The, the question was greatly, uh, was she willing to go? It was not a forced arrangement. If she wasn't willing to go, uh, there would have been no arrangement there. But I do feel there's some element of parents getting involved in marriage, even if it is not a forced marriage, uh, a pre-forced marriage. If I was dating somebody or, or going to marry somebody, I would want to know what my dad think, what my mom think, because as I tell people, you're going. It doesn't mean that because they don't um, think it's the, the the they're not fond of the person. They're not against the person, but they're not fond of the person. I still got to make that decision, but I could not make that decision if my mom and dad are adamantly against the relationship. I I wouldn't want to go into marriage like that simply because you marry into a family. You know, I tell people that all the time, Nathan. You're married. If you're not just marrying one person, you're married into a family. Right. And I would wait until I can win, or my 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 fiance can win them into her into their favor before we actually proceed with the marriage. I think it's important to do that. Um, but I do feel there has to be some kind of romantic attachment, and there should be some kind of romantic attachment, especially in these days when we are, we've got the freedom and the liberty in Christ to do that. Um, so I'm not too sure why the person would oppose oppose that. Um, that sounds very strange to me that a person would make those kind of comments. Uh, the listener sent in the question, uh -huh. sent in a clarification as far as entertaining, okay. uh, referring to dating or starting a relationship. I, I find it hard to want to date somebody you don't like or you don't love. Yeah. Uh, I find it very difficult. Uh, if you mean that you don't like them or you don't, th you're not fond of them at this point in time. But you, you mean you might see some qualities that you might see if that, that person, you know, I, there's nothing wrong in exploring that and, and maybe. You know, have a, a a group date or something to just hear the person because sometimes you see pers a person from a distance, you don't know them until you're in a close contact and hear them laughing, uh, telling jokes sometimes, asking questions. They're a completely different personality 
uh, when you in a in a kind of a, a close setting as opposed to be in church and he's so rigid and so stern and the way they talk and the way they carry themselves you think almost that if they bend down they'll break you know <laughs> <laughs> but when you get to see them in a a, a more casual atmosphere it, it may be possible that you can see that it's a quite different person so if you look at it from that angle I would not be adverse to exploring that kind of uh, relationship but to go into a serious relationship of, of um, possibility of engagement and marriage, uh, there must be some kind of attachment and attraction to the person. Uh, and I would not recommend anybody who doesn't have an attachment and attraction to a person to get into marriage. I think you you set up yourself to a great fall in the future. Thank you very much to the individuals who have sent in these questions thus far. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268 268- 462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. A question that has come in, what denomination was Christ and should we subscribe to one or another? Well, Christ obviously did not belong to any denomination because there were no, there were no churches when Christ was alive. He, he said, I will build my church. The church was yet future. The church started on the day of Pentecost, so he could not have been a member of the church because the church was not founded until Pentecost. So I, I think it's a question that um, I know is designed to trip me up or something, but quite frankly, um, no, uh, um, none of the disciples again, was part of a church because the church, as I said, started at Pentecost. So he could not have been a member of a church. How important is it that I am associated with a particular denomination? Well, I, I, look, the church is what Christ has founded. Let's forget that. I know the church is divided. You've got multiple of denominations, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, a lot of these dom- denominations that started really came out of different groups because of some doctrinal issue in most cases. Um, for example, um, the Protestant churches, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church, those are churches that came out of the Catholic Church because of the, the, the doctrines that are there that are so contrary to Scripture, the seven sacraments, and no seven sacraments in the Bible, the only two, and we don't even call them sacraments, to be honest with you. And then, of course, the false doctrines about uh, purgatory, false doctrine about the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the Assumption of Mary, um, praying for the saints, relics. I mean, there are countless errors and countless malpractices that have gone on in the Catholic Church. And remember, the Reformers never really planned to move out the Catholic Church. They were planning to reform the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church cannot be reformed. That's the, that's a reality. Um, they are steeped in their own tradition, and in many ways they are blinded uh, to truth because it's not just the Bible that they um, look to. They look to the Apocrypha, they look to tradition, and they put them on par with the Scriptures. But um, I would say to a person that you're living on planet Earth. God has founded a church, so you have to be a me- should be a member of some kind of church. People tell me I can stay home and worship God. Well, the Bible says not to forsake the assembly of yourselves together. So how do you explain that scripture? Obviously, God intended that the believer be part of a church. My my important my factor would be that you should be the part of a church that teaches biblical truth. Um, a church that, in my judgment, that is somehow involved in missionary activity. 
And um, I mean, church also that ministers to the family. I mean, if it has a, a youth ministry and you have a child that's of youth age, the church would be able to minister to that to that person. But basically and fundamentally, uh, it's important to be part of a church, also to be able to fellowship and to use your God-given gift within the assembly to advance the kingdom of God. So it is absolutely an essential part of living the Christian life to be part of a church. Read the book of Acts chapter 2 and you see that they had a record of who belonged to the church. There were 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. Clearly there was some some indication of who would part of the church, etc., etc. So it is important uh, to be part of the church. And a question that has come in from a listener if God is the same and doesn't change, how then do we say that the Sabbath day and worship day changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament with no command from Christ? And how is that acceptable? Well, when the Bible says that God doesn't change, it doesn't mean that he doesn't change in his dealings with humankind. God doesn't change in his character. His nature doesn't change. He will always be holy. He will always be just. He will always be loving. Uh, he will always be omnipotent, always omnipresent, all of those fancy titles that people use today to describe God and his attributes. So he doesn't change that. But in his dealings with humankind, he certainly changes. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He, for example, if a man repents, um, uh, take, take the situation of Nineveh, uh, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, that was a message. If you don't repent within 40 days, you'll be destroyed. Uh, but then when the message is given and repentance, God changes his decision to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. So he changes in terms of his dealing with humankind and humankind's response uh, to what he says in his word. Now, coming to the Sabbath, uh, it is very, very clear when you come to the New Testament. Let's forget about the Old Testament for just now because there are two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's no doubt that under the Old Testament economy, the Sabbath was the standard day of worship. Nobody can dispute that whatsoever. But when you come into the Gospels and you come into the New Testament, there is no command anywhere in any of them that c- commands that the church observe the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, uh, Acts chapter 15 would have been the ideal place for that to be imposed on the Gentile church. And it was not. It was not even an issue. We should not. They, they said that some had come from Jerusalem saying that the Gentiles should observe the law of Moses. And uh, they had this meeting to describe what is the church's position with the Gentiles in respect to the law of Moses. And the decision was that they were not to be held to the law of Moses. Peter said, you know, you can't put this yoke upon the Gentiles that was upon us. We couldn't even keep it. How are you going to put this on the Gentiles? Uh, so clearly, it was not designed to put the Old Testament law on the neck of the believers. Uh, the other thing is this. When you come to the New Testament, you find that when Paul is dealing with issues about days and seasons and festivals, etc., he gives the believer the liberty to be fully persuaded in your mind what day of worship. The Christian doesn't worship God in one day. The Christian worship God seven days a week, right? So I don't know what the issue is here. Uh, there's no one special day uh, that that we, well, when I say that we should make it a special day in the sense that, you know, we're not worshiping God the way we should be, but on this special day we, we worship the Lord. We worship the Lord every single day. But, Again, Paul makes it sure that the Sabbath in the book of Hebrews was a shadow of things to come. 
It was the prefigurement that one day God would offer rest because that's what the day of Sabbath meant. Uh, before the law, God separated the Sabbath day and it was supposed to be a day of rest. The whole concept of the word Sabbath means rest. Then God instituted it and made it part of the Ten Commandments that he gave to the Jews. It was supposed, then when Christ comes, Christ has fulfilled all those shadows and all those types. So he is the rest that all those things were pointing to. Uh, that that helps to resolve part. The other thing is when you go into the New Testament and you see that the church started on the first day of the week, day of Pentecost. There's no doubt. The Holy Spirit came on the first day of the week, the day of Pentecost. When Paul is uh, having a meeting in um, uh, Ephesus, uh, I forgot the name, where he's preaching to, and Eutychus falls down and um, he's killed, it's on the first day of the week. When it's given instruction of when to collect offerings for the churches, it's on the first day of the week. And you can't ignore the significance that those... And the other thing is this, every single time Christ appears after his uh, death, it's on the first day of the week. And there are five or six different times where he appears, and it's always on the first day of the week. There is some... Another thing is this, John in the book of Revelation talks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's a very unique term. The word there is the Lordian day. There's only one other place you find that word Lordian, and that is the Lord's Supper, the Lordian Supper. Those are two unique things. Lordian day and the Lord is not the same as the day of the Lord. There's a different uh, uh, Greek expression for the day of the Lord. So people who say that John was in the day of the Lord uh, is missing the whole point, that there's an expression for the day of the Lord and what John has there. He's making a distinct uh, difference between the two. And the other thing is, quickly, you can go back to church history from the first century right through where they all say the same thing. We worship on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day. I can give you about five or six different um, uh, church fathers within the first 100 to 150 years, and all of them say the same thing. They no longer worship the, the, the old Jewish Sabbath but they worship what they call the new Sabbath, which is the Lord's Day. And that's the mistake the Adventists make because they say because they say they worship the Sabbath on the Sabbath. They say, but it's not that. It's talking about the first day of the week. So when you take the the biblical New Testament, uh, what's in the New Testament, you look at the early practice of the churches uh, from the, in the first century. They all celebrated the first day as a memorial for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, um, if you have a problem with the first day of the week, I'm not going to fight with anybody, to be honest with you, Apostle. Every man be fully persuaded in his mind. So, if you feel that the day for you to worship is to have... Do you, do you know there's Seventh-day Baptist? Yeah. Yeah. There's Seventh-day Baptist, right? And there's a Seventh-day um, different church here. I forgot the name of it. It's um, not very far from where I'm living. Uh, but again, they believe they should worship on the Sabbath. Let them worship on the Sabbath. What I would warn people against is abominating and condemning people who decide to worship on Sunday. And here's my beef with this Seventh-day Adventist church. They say the only day they should worship is on the Sabbath. But they worship on the Sabbath and the Sunday as well. Uh, and I think part of the reason it was done so that some of the people would not go to other churches, right? So if the uh, church is abominated for worshiping Sunday, why do you worship on the Sunday? Mm-hmm. They do that in in in, um, in Saint Lucia. Uh, I don't have to do it here, but the the Seventh Adventist churches in Saint Lucia they worship Saturday, also on Sunday. 
So it can't be if the if the mark of the beast belong to those who on Sunday, they should have to get it as well. <laughs> <laughs> we have a caller on the line from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Hi, good evening, Mr. Williams. What was your question? Which other book apart from Paul, the book Paul writes so much, 13 books in the New Testament, which other book in the New Testament that speaks about speaking in tongues? Well, the only two chapters that deal with tongues, that is the um, Acts chapter 2 and uh, Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, uh, 12 to 14, you only find it in those chapters, no other. He does, he, he does mention... Um, the uh, in another uh, book there, I think it's in Ephesians. He does mention the gift of tongues as well. Uh, I think it's in chapter four. But quite frankly, he doesn't expound on the the, the matter of tongues. The the only exposition he does about tongues to let you explain what tongues is all about and how it's supposed to be used is in uh, uh, Corinthians chapter twelve to fourteen. Can 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 someone imitate speaking tongues? Can someone what? Imitate. Well, there's a lot of imitation going on. There's no question about that. Uh, I can tell you stories about um, uh, an ex-member of our church when I was in St. Lucia, uh, quite frankly, who would engage in it. And I, I, I called her after I saw all this commotion and asked her what was going She's just doing what everybody is doing. There, There's a guy that when I was there in St. Lucia, uh, St. Vincent, sorry, there was a, a church there where the pastor brought a guy from Guyana to teach people how to speak in tongues. You can't teach people to speak in tongues. It's a gift. So there's a lot of imitation going on today. Uh, and, and a lot of it, I believe, I will tell you this, the vast majority of it is fake, completely fake. And let's remember that it's not just the Christian church that speak in tongues, okay? Mormons speak in tongues, okay? Um, the heathens speak in tongues, Okay, so it's not it's not uh, the the witch doctors speak in tongues as well, so it's not something limited to Christianity. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the ways you know a person is demon possessed most times is that they speak in tongues. Uh, they they they've never learned a language and they speak in tongues. I know that from experience, by the way, so I can tell you that. Uh, so the idea that because a person claims to be able to speak in tongues or even speak in a language, that is, a lot of it is gibberish, to be honest with you, because people who know linguistics, uh, who have sat into these services to listen to people who say they speak in tongues, have all said quite it's gibberish. What is going on is gibberish. There's no, it's not related to any language that is known. But the New Testament language of tongues was a known language. In the book of Acts, I think there are about 10 different nations from Mesopotamia, from Syria, or, that are mentioned. We all hear them speak in our tongues. So it's actually a, a human language uh, in the New Testament. But we what we're hearing... Uh-huh. There are 10 attempts to invite me to Egypt, and they were trying to force speaking in tongues on me, and yeah, yeah. I kind of told myself phony that because I know that that is not a scripture. Yeah. And the wife told me that she can interpret speaking in tongues. I say, you are? Yeah. So I find that funny. 
Listen, all I will say to you, I've heard some of these people trying to preach, and then they punctuate it with some kind of... Uh, it's pure nonsense, to be honest. It's just pure, pure nonsense that is going on today. Look, Paul is very, very clear. We have clear instructions about the use of tongues in the church if the tongues are going to be used. The Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, who gives the gift of tongues gives you direction in the book of uh, Corinthians how the gift is supposed to be used. And it's not being used today like it's supposed two or three people at one time. And there must be an interpreter. If there's not an interpreter, it doesn't belong to the church. I mean, people, look, the, the problem today is that people are living by experience. They're not living by the word. And experience could always deceive you. And that's the big thing that has been happening today. Uh, the devil is, uh, quite frankly, trying to create the atmosphere in the world for the Antichrist to come with a great miracle worker that's going to deceive people. And the world is being set up for that mirage that's going to happen. And it has started in the church. We've got to get back to the Bible. Let the Bible be the standard by which we judge anything that is happening in the church. If it is contrary to the Bible, it is contrary to God's will. And it doesn't belong within the church. Okay. My second question. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 12, when the, the Samaritan woman tells Jesus Christ that, and he be greater than his, than their father Jacob that knew them well. Uh, Jacob was a Jew. Yeah. Uh, why then they should say Jacob was their father and then the Jew are no, no dealing with Samaritan? Well, don't forget she's a Samaritan. And a Samaritan is a half Jew. She's a mixture between Jew and the Syrians. When the uh, Assyrians took Israel in captivity in 722, what they did, they transferred the vast majority of the Jewish people from Israel, Palestine, to Assyria. And then they took uh, people from Syria and they put them in Samaria. And there was a marriage, intermarriage between the Jews and the, uh, the Assyrians. And that's where you get the Samaritans. So the Samaritans really are hybrid. They are a, a mixture, a half-breed, they're a mixture, they're, they're a mixed group between Jews and um and um, and the Assyrians, and that's why they were so much hated by the Jew who was I don't want to use the word pure Jew, but who could not believe that the Jewish people would intermarry with these pagan Assyrians because the Old Testament law banned Israel marrying pagans, but in the absence of when the, the absence of captivity, uh, all the men taken to Assyria. And Syria bring all these men into into Israel. Uh, clearly, there's going to be some kind of intermarriage, and that's what took place. So, but so when she uses that term, um, she is just. And that the other thing is this: don't forget that the Samaritans obey and live by the, the law of Moses. They only observe the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They don't accept the other parts of it. So uh, they see themselves as having the same heritage that the Jews would have. Uh, so that is where she would have she would have made that comment, because uh, in other words, if you're using the book of uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, clearly uh, Jacob is one of the forefathers even of her religion because she is still following the law, 
called the Pentateuch, but they're not worshiping the same place. Israel has their temple in Jerusalem. They have their temple in Mount Gerizim. See, two different locations, but still using the same scripture. You're welcome, sir. And thank you so much for calling. Appreciate that. Thank you very much for the call and the questions, Brother Williams. Have a blessed evening and continue to encourage others to listen to the Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. And you can listen online at radio Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 816. Pastor, you were talking before that call mm-hmm. about the Sabbath and recently uh, overheard someone uh, using the rationale that Paul kept the Sabbath and therefore we should continue to follow the Sabbath. And the rationale was verses like Acts 17.2 where it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, talking about going into the synagogues. Is that a descriptive or a prescriptive? No, I think, look, what what, what happened in, in those days, there's no church. There's no church buildings. There's nothing like that, quite frankly. Most churches are in the homes. If Paul is going to reach the Jew, remember he's apostle to who? The Gentiles. But remember Paul, even though he's called to the Gentiles, he says to the Jew first. So Paul is trying to reach the Jew. Where are you going to reach the Jew? The only one place to reach the Jew At is the synagogue. synagogue. When are you going to reach the Jew in the synagogue? He's on the Sabbath day when they're reading the scriptures, etc., etc. So that is clearly, uh, it's like if we were living today, we're trying to reach a, a group of Jews, and they have their own synagogue here. The only time to properly meet them and talk with them would be going to, on the Sabbath day. Doesn't mean that I am uh, making that the normal practice of worshiping on the Sabbath day. I'm going to do an evangelistic work on the Sabbath day. So I, that's not the pattern, uh, etc. And the other thing is just that you know that some of the for church fathers that uh, I mentioned, like th- you take Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. Ignatius was a disciple of Polycarp. And Ignatius is the one, one of those parishes who said that we worship on the first day of the week. So it's very hard to see how you can have this connection from John to, Ignati- uh, to Polycarp to Ignatius. And clearly they're still within that period of time to know what the church is doing. That's what is being practiced. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have another question that has come in. Pastor Murphy... Thank you for the wonderful program. I need you to explain this for me. Where the Bible says the earth will melt with a firmament heat, is it physical or figurative? No, that is definitely not figurative. That is literal. This whole world is going to be burnt up. That is why these people are wasting their time trying to serve planet Earth. Uh, the, the, The earth is doomed. There's nothing man can do to avert the catastrophe that's coming up on planet Earth. And it's a, a catastrophe that's not going to be man-made. It is God is going to burn up this whole system. Man has a period of time to repent and turn to God, get his life right, and live for the Lord. But it's very, very clear that we're headed towards a time of tribulation, a time of wrath and judgment. God has been too silent now for, for far too long. I would remind people that America, for example, has murdered 65 million babies since 1973. Now, that's only America alone. You have no idea of what takes place in in Europe, what takes place in in, in Russia, in China, in Africa. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Can God stand by and see innocent suffer like that and not act? 
he is holding back the dam of his wrath, but it's going to break sooner or later. And that time is coming very close because everything man is doing today is very, very clear. There has to be a, a cabal of the most evil, wicked people on earth, men, who are trying to shape this world by the things that they are pushing on planet earth. And when you begin to learn and see what is happening, you realize that behind these men has to be a demonic power. Uh, that Satan is actually galvanizing the world uh, against God and his church and the Bible. And uh, it will not be very long before this system is wrapped up, the church is raptured, and God's wrath is poured out. So it's a waste of time, these people trying to talk about climate change. And the world, man is not going to destroy this world, God is going to do it. So don't panic uh, all of this thing that people are saying. I heard uh, the, the, the young girl, the um, Orkizia or something like that, What's the name again? The, the American, the oh, radical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, uh, she said it would be destroyed in 12 years. <laughs> Mark it down. It will not be destroyed in 12 years. That's just a woman talking off her head who is totally illiterate about the Bible and no doubt blinded by politics. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, you can call and ask it by calling 268 462 7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 1454. Nathan, I want to say something here, I might not get a chance to say this. We're headed back to nature worship. That's where we're headed right now. And that's the thing that will unite the world. Uh, the fear of uh, the world being destroyed. We're going back to what is called the worship of Mother Earth. Mark my words you are going to see this become like, Mother Earth is going to become like the God. Everything mm -hmm. is done for Mother Earth. That's where we're headed. We're headed back to the first century world, pretty much the same way, where you've got paganistic ideas governing the world. That's where we're headed right now. And don't be surprised that you're going to, um, you're going to find this emphasis on Mother Earths because they believe it's Mother Earth that gives us our food. Mother Earth that gave us the rain. It is God that gives us our food. It's God that gives us the So Mother Earth is now displacing Jehovah God. And the whole world is united against this idea of climate change. And we're going to save the world. Uh, and I think that you're going to see more emphasis on, on Mother Earth and preserving Mother Earth and that, you know, and so on. So don't be surprised when you begin to see these things in, in, in small kids' books and uh, and see presentations in, 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 uh, in movies and so on and so forth. It is a systematic attempt to get away from biblical Christianity, but something has to be filled that void. And the answer is Mother Earth, focusing on, on, on nature. If you have a question, you can send it to us. But until we receive your questions, we are going to start out on a new topic. It's a topic that you don't hear taught a lot in at least recent times, and it's that of biblical separation. Pastor, what in the world do you mean by biblical separation? Well, look, Nathan, as you rightfully said, uh, I think it's one of the biblical doctrines that uh, not only neglected, but I don't even am aware that people know exists, that the scriptures uh, give us a God imperative for people to separate and um, sever relationships with um, not only just sin and the world, but also sever relationships with believers, other believers, who deviate and go away from biblical truth 
and also separate from the final apostate church of the end time. Uh, so the, the, the concept of separation uh, is there in the Bible, but I am not too sure it is being emphasized today. Uh, and that is one of the big problems we face uh, when you call for believers to come out and be separate. How would you respond to the listener that says, Pastor Murphy, that just sounds like you're trying to make an excuse to impose legalistic Christian beliefs? Well, if you think the Bible is legalistic uh, by what it tells you to separate from, I have no argument against that. The big question that has to be settled by me and everybody else, what saith the Scripture? If God says that I am to separate from a brother who walks disorderly, I have no option as a believer. I must obey what God says rather than even what the church says or what the sentiment is in the world. And the Bible tells you specific believers that you're supposed to separate from. When God said separate from the apostate system of the end time, uh, the church of the end time that is apostate, I don't have an option with that. It's either I obey God or I follow my instincts of my worldly thinking, right? Uh, And then when God says that you separate from certain sins, I don't have an option. We must remember that God is Lord and we are servants. He is our Father and He is our children. And He is the one that instructs us and gives us and tells us what to do. He can advise us, counsel us. He can also rebuke us. He knows what is best for us and therefore He gives us clear instruction in the Bible in regards to these matters. So it's not an option for us as believers. So before we go any further, let me ask you this. How would you define the biblical doctrine of separation? Well, to my mind, the simple definition of separation would be for the believer to uh, act uh, or separate from sin, error, and uh, hold to truth and righteousness. In other words, it's moving away from sin and error and is is actually separating from onto something, truth and righteousness. I say truth because uh, it has to do with the Word. When a believer goes away from the Word and what the Word of God teaches, that's truth, right? So separation involves uh, separating from a believer who there's a clear instruction in the Bible. You'll see that later, Nathan, that Paul says, you know, if a man doesn't follow these truths that I've given, these traditions, Mark that man, separate from that man, have no company with that man, don't have no fellowship with that man. And then, of course, it has to do with the whole matter of righteous living, which has to do with my, a person's behavior. So it's not just the creed the person holds to, but it also has to do with his conduct, not just his belief system, but also his behavior. Uh, so, in simple terms, and by the way, uh, Nathan, it's even much more simpler than that, because separation basically is holiness. The word for Holiness in the Old Testament is, is Kodesh. The word for holiness in the New Testament is Hagios. Both those terms mean this, to set apart, to separate, basically. So the call to separation is a call to holiness, separating from that which is evil, that which is wrong, that which is contrary to God's will. So the, the separation can be equated with the pursuit of holiness, basically. Am I understanding you correctly that by saying separation, you're almost saying a call to Christian isolationism? Well, um, nowhere in Scripture uh, are we called to isolate ourselves and cloister ourselves away from the world. Uh, we are told that we are in the world, but not of the world. And we have been mandated by Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we're not, uh, when we talk about separation from the world, we're not talking about isolation. 
we're, we're simply saying that we as believers should not be actively engaged in worldly activities. We should not try to conform to the world. We should not try to adjust to the world. Uh, we should not try to dialogue with the world. We should not try to blend with the world in any sense. And clearly, we not try to fit into the world. We are to be a distinct people in the world with a message from God. So the idea of separating from the world is not talking about isolationism or being a hermit somewhere. And by the way, that's exactly what happened with uh, how the monk restarted with the monasteries. Uh, they took this to an extreme and they left the world, went into a cave and just spent their time there in prayer and fasting, etc. Et they got away from the world. That's not what we are to engage the world, but we are not to be um, those who conform to it or try to integrate into the world to lose our identity, our Christian identity. Uh, so that is not talking about uh, isolationism when we talk about separating from the world, etc. Is the doctrine of separation, is that just a New Testament concept, or are there principles that and they can be pointed to that predate the New Testament? Well, anyone familiar with both the Old Testament and the New Testament would be very much aware of one thing, that this particular truth of separation from the world and separating from the lifestyle of the world is not a New Testament truth only. It has very ancient roots and is rooted exactly in the Old Testament. Uh, it is very, very clear that Israel was God's Old Testament people. He has separated the nation from all the nations of the world. He wanted to have a distinct lifestyle. Uh, everything about Israel was supposed to be different, what they eat, how they dress, how they worship. Everything was supposed to be distinct. They were to be separate from the heathen, etc., etc. And the reason for this was that there was supposed to be a centripetal force, like a magnet, that as a result of their uh, lifestyle, as a result of their holiness, a result of the kind of God that they worship, the heathen would be drawn into the true worship of God. So it had an evangelistic purpose uh, in, in terms of uh, his, his, uh, his design. Let me use some examples to show you. Uh, look at Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 to 47. Leviticus eleven forty-four to 47 says, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Verse 46. This is the law of the beast and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast yeah, which may one, not be this eaten. Is just one example of, of God calling Israel to holiness. And the word there, sanctify and holy, they're from the same root word, and it has to mean that you need to be separate and distinct because I am separate and distinct, God, and he wants them to be separate. But notice that it, the, 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 the reason why these foods are forbidden and why God made again, it has to do with the fact that even their dietary laws were to be distinct from the heathen, uh, etc. But it had to do with the idea of Israel manifesting holiness even in their lifestyle and in, in connection also with the, the dietary laws. Look also at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27, 26. 20, verse 26 says, 
and ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord, am, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed, severed you Separated. from, okay, from other people, that ye should be mine. Yeah. So God is holy, and he has, you'll use the word severed there, if you check the King James, the word is separated. Because he is holy, he has now taken Israel and separated Israel from the nations of the world, that they themselves will be holy like he is holy. So it's not a it's not a, a New Testament truth. God always wants His people to be distinct, to be separate, uh, and to be uh, to be able to represent Him. Uh, look also at Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. Deuteronomy seven and verse six. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. I, I don't know how anybody can dispute that, quite frankly, that that was God's intention. The problem with, with the church today, Nathan, I think, is that people just think they're saved from hell. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose. I'm not going to hell. But that's not God's, that's not what, as a matter of fact, that's, that's, that's a minor part of this whole matter of salvation, as we show you, has to do with a believer living a holy life before humankind so that humankind would want the gospel of Christ. It is all about holiness. That's God's purpose, that, that we be holy. Look also at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse number 2. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. See that? Again, he emphasizes this, that I have chosen you, and the reason why I've chosen you is to be, and the word holy again, remember, in every of these passages, is to be separate and distinct. Separate and the Lord used the word peculiar person. Okay, special type of person. We're supposed to be a special type of people. We must not so amalgamate with the world that we lose our identity. In the Old Testament, God abominated that. He said, you must be separate and distinct. When people see you as a Jew, the way you dress, the way you eat, the way you conduct yourself, the way you plant your products, they would know this is a Jew. This is God's people, right? That is the whole purpose in the Old Testament, separating his people unto himself. One other verse, 26, Deuteronomy 26, 19. That verse reads as follows, And to make thee high above all nations, which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. Clearly, that you would stand out, elevated high, so that when the nations, the heathen nations who serve pagan gods, see you, see your lifestyle, see every aspect of your life, basically, it is something that they're attracted to and understand that you are unique people on the face of the earth. Now, that is God's call for Israel. Separate. The word holy, the word sanctify. So Israel is called, Israel is chosen, and Israel is sanctified to be a unique, special people unto God. Uh, that was God's design uh, for Israel. So if he called them to be separate, even with their dietary laws, since that was one of the verses that came up, does that mean that in order to be separated from the world, I should still follow those? And that's the point we're making, that 
under the Old Testament economy, that is what pertained, that is the standard God set for the Jew in the Old Testament. Remember, you're dealing with people 4,000, 6,000 years ago. You're, not, you're dealing with people almost that uh, sometimes we try to, uh, to try to take our 21st century mindset. Uh, after 2,000 years of Christianity, we try to transfer it to that that's that's the wrong setting you've got to understand the conditions under which the, those are people who were surrounded by pagan gods every nation had a pagan god and the way they decided who god was stronger than each other when they went to battle whoever won the battle their god was stronger mm. this is the battle of the gods going on okay and our lord is, is saying to israel i want you to be distinct this does not apply to us if you see later all of those ceremonial laws according to the book of colossians were nailed to the cross and all of those things were shadow of things to come those no longer just like the old Testament sacrifices no longer apply today because Christ has fulfilled them. Those are not, not relevant uh, for us uh, today. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you've got a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268-782-1454, or you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. We have a question that has come in. Will the church go through the tribulation? Our position and my position and the position of most evangelicals is that the church will not go through the tribulation. I am thinking of, uh, I did something on the rapture before, right? Yes, you did. In fact, I will, as you finish answering that question. Uh, There are different positions. Let's be very, very clear. There are different positions. There's some people call the... the, um, and the pre-tribulation, that is the church will be raptured before the tribulation. There is the mid-tribulation, that people will be raptured midway during the period. And there is the pre-wrath tribulation, that just before the climax of the tribulation period for the last seven years, the church will be raptured. So they'll go through most of the tribulation period, but will be uh, excluded from the final phase, which is called the, the, the great wrath of God. Um, that is the position, but we believe, uh, quite frankly, that uh, the church was not appointed to wrath. The Bible teaches that very, very clearly. He's not appointed to wrath. The other thing is we do believe that there are types in the Old Testament that surely indicates uh, that um, the concept of the rapture where the believer doesn't go. Take, take uh, Enoch. Before the flood came, Enoch was translated. He didn't go to uh, the flood. Now, um, Noah and his sons are a type of Israel who will go through the tribulation. Enoch is a type of the church who will be taken out before the tribulation. And of course, also you've got the, before the Jews were judged uh, through the the, uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians, you have the situation where Elijah is also taken up to glory. Those are two examples of, uh, and every, every New Testament truth has an Old Testament principle or testament type that is there and uh, it's for one of those reasons I believe that clearly that there's going to be a rapture before there's a tribulation period but again if you go to the Pauline epistles it's mentioned that the church is not appointed to wrath we will not go to the wrath of God that is very very clear from not just uh, and I can't give you the exact verse now because I'm just speaking ad hoc but we can I can deal with that at another time give you specific verses. If you want two 90 minute programs that are dedicated specifically to this topic you can look up the podcast again that's truth podcast if you were just to google that 
and look for episode number 95 and 96. Or you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo you see, which is that of a microphone in the middle of the screen. You'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that, then go to the That's Truth archive and look for episode 95 and 96. They are both entitled Bible Prophecy, The Rapture Explained, and Details of the Rapture Explained. And that will give you much more information. Again, the basis for answering questions on this program, Pastor, is what? Your opinion? No, I try as much as I can. Uh, I want you to see what the Word teaches. It's, it's just not, it's not, human opinion doesn't count, to be honest with you. Is that um, that doesn't mean, of course, that opinion doesn't come in. Right. That's, that's, that's virtually impossible. But uh, what's important is it can be established by the word, verses of scripture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is what carries weight should carry weight with believers. Not just I say I had this experience, or I think this is what it what it is. Uh, what the word of God says is is vitally important in regards to these matters. We've got about twenty minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. And so if you've got a question, go ahead and call in with it, 268-462-7420, or send it in via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. We are talking specifically tonight about the topic of biblical separation. Is it just a New Testament concept? And Pastor was sharing some principles and examples of where throughout the Old Testament the Israel people of Israel were called to be separated from the people that they were living among. So that brings me to the next point, Nathan, because it is not just the Old Testament people of God that was called to holiness. And remember, I said holiness is separation. That's what the word in the Hebrew language and the Greek. But it's interesting when you come to the matter of the church now, which is today, the same purpose and design that God had for his Old Testament people of separation and sanctification, holiness, is the exact same purpose God has for his New Testament people, which is the church. Remember that Israel has been set aside, according to the book of Romans, uh, for their unbelief. God has now grafted in the church into his plan. And his plan for the church is that the church be holy and separate and distinct. When the church is raptured, God will then regraft Israel into his program, as the book of Romans chapter 11 teaches. But right now, God, the agency of God's, the instrument that God is using on planet Earth is the church. And what is should be, uh, be aware of, that that purpose of holiness hasn't changed. Because holiness reflects the character of God. God wants us to be like Him. So that is why, not only in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, we discover this is the purpose for the church. Look at Ephesians, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, and verse 9. Ephesians 2, verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice again we're chosen, and part of the reason we're chosen is to be a royal priesthood, so we know that the priesthood of the believer. But we're also chosen to be a holy people uh, to him, what is called a holy nation, a peculiar people. The same language that is used in connection with Israel is now transferred to the church because in terms of God's purpose, it hasn't changed for the church. Just that he wanted the Old Testament people to be holy, 
That's what he wants us today to be holy. Now, here's the problem, Nathan. I forgot somebody told me, um, I think it was today or yesterday, um, that they were having a conversation with some of the young kids at the school. I think it was Robert, uh, our youth pastor. And during the conversation uh, with the sixth grade, I think it was, uh, one of the students asked him this question. If God wants us to be happy, what's wrong with me as a girl having a girl? Hmm. Now, this is a grade six child, okay? Here is where the problem lies. We have given people the idea that the main thing about Christianity is that God wants you to be happy. We push that and push that. Uh, he has, you know, and we have we have not done a good job in emphasizing what Christian. It's about holiness. Yeah. Happiness flows out of holiness, but if you go after happiness, you'll never find it. And I think that is a big mistake we make in the church. That the church is to make you feel happy. God would meet all your needs, and God, God is a Santa Claus. That's what we've made God. See. Uh, and we miss out the whole idea that the primary purpose that God has called the church is the holiness, to be like Him in His holiness. So uh, clearly that is one. If, look also at First Peter chapter one verse fifteen. First Peter chapter one and verse fifteen says, "But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation." Again, He wants you to be like Himself. And I noticed that you're not to be holy and just want to, in all manner, on the word conversation in the New Testament is lifestyle, behavior, your conduct. So I must be concerned not about holy in church, but my, all my lifestyle. I must make sure when I'm at work, uh, I don't do things that would besmirch the name of God. I must make sure that when I am dating, I don't violate uh, His holiness. If I keep that idea in my mind, foremost in my mind, the holiness of God, it controls my life, how I act, how I behave. It doesn't matter where I am. It, it, it governs and, and, and uh, controls my behavior and my actions. That's how God wants the believer to live. Uh, holiness is not something restricted to the church. It's supposed to be in the workplace, in the home, in the playing field. Uh, that's what God wants. Also, look at First Peter, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, 4. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I think you read something wrong there. He has chosen us when founding that we should be happy. You don't see the word happy there? <laughs> no. No. That's the mistake of the church. The church the church has misled the world in what God really wants from them. Right? And we believe that by lowering the standard and talking about happiness, uh, that people will flow into the kingdom of God. But they go after the wrong thing and therefore they don't have the experience that they're looking for because they think that this is all about fun and pleasure and excitement and, uh, and, uh, and happiness. That's not what it's about. Look, the, I will say this. You would know this, Nathan. There's no greater peace in all the world than to know that you're at peace with God. Yeah. I don't know of any greater peace than that. You can lay your head down at night and know what happened to you. You're safe. There's no greater peace than that. And that peace gives you a sense of happiness. And I don't know about other people, but when you do something that really pleases the Lord, I can't explain. It's a, it's a happiness that is there that the world, you can't, you can't compute it in terms of numbers. You just, I'm so thankful that I did this thing that was right and it pleasing to God. That's how we were designed to live. That's what it's all about. 
But uh, unfortunately, the church has created a materialistic Christianity uh, that focuses on things, and they've missed the boat. And as a result, the church has found it disappointing because we've sold them a wrong bill of goods. Now they've opened the package and realized, now you didn't tell me the truth on this matter. Pastor, a follow-up in relation to that question about uh, whether you should uh, entertain someone or date someone, uh, have a relationship with someone that you don't feel strongly about. Follow-up is, someone may say that they love you, but you don't love them back, and then you feel forced to marry the person, maybe because of guilt or family reasons, only one person giving or showing love in the relationship. How do you avoid that? Well, you avoid that by settling what is God's will for your life. I mean, I don't have an answer to give any magic solution, but you should surely have peace in your heart about the person you're going to marry. If there's doubts in your mind and you're worried and you you, you realize that the, the, the errors are there and the, you can see the faults and there's no real there's no real romantic attachment, you are going down the wrong trail. You're going to end up in disaster. Okay? Um, but again, there are biblical standards that you should look for what a, a husband should be. Uh, the biblical standards, if, it's, if you're a woman, a man, f- what a wife should be. Um, you know, the, the thing that the Bible emphasizes about a man is that he should love his wife. Let me suggest to you, a man can't love his wife if he doesn't love his mother. So if you go home to his home and you're trying to assess whether or not how this man is going to treat me, I'm going to suggest to you that the way he treats his mother is going to tell you a lot about your kind of treatment that's coming. So if you close your eye to the fact that you got a dimple and you're not concerned about his response to his mother's affection for his mother, etc., etc., I am suggesting to you going blind into this whole thing and you're going to get uh, one day your eyes are going to open and you're going to see it's a clear disaster. If I'm dating a woman, uh, one of the things the Bible emphasizes about a woman is her submissive spirit. I mean, how does she respond to her dad? How does she treat her dad? You know, those things are very, 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 very significant. Um, the, the other thing about a man, uh, he's supposed to supply the needs of his wife. Uh, you would know when you go on date, do you have to buy the, the lunch? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he never has anything at all. He's, you know, you're the one, you're the one to put in the gas. I mean, those are things that tell you quite frankly that this guy's a waste of time. I mean, you just don't rush into the, to be, and don't ever marry because you feel sorry for somebody. Why it's do not you say the, that? It's not the right reason for, for marriage. It's, I feel sorry if I marry somebody. And don't try to rescue somebody because you feel so sorry, you know. They're, they're either becoming an old maid or they're getting on in age and you feel so sorry for them, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, well, I might have just... You, that's not the basis for marriage. What is God's will? Is this person going to help you forward in in God's will in your life? Are you settled that this is what God wants you? This is the right person for you? Do you have uneasiness about it? I think those are all the the red lights are saying that this is not the way to go. You just made a statement there and in so many Hollywood movies do uh, you hear people all so nervous that they're as they're getting married, is this the right person? Uh, I'm just so nervous about this. Is there a biblical principle that we should be nervous as we're getting married? I think the biblical principle is peace. 
Paul says God has called us to peace. So the fact that you are uh, having this this uh, this this moment of doubt or this moment of uneasiness, a moment of um, unsettled uh, irritation or whatever, uh, I I would think that you need to get that a little bit settled before. Now, there's nothing, of course, when you're going to the wedding, you're preparing and stuff like that. There's always got some kind of nervousness as well, stress, look, yeah, stress, yeah. that kind of thing. But if there's any doubt along you that, that way, you're still not too sure. I would suggest to you that either postpone it or wait a little bit while until you're settled in your heart that this is Paul's person's view. Listen, marriage is not lasting. It has an expiry date today, okay? It used to be that in the world, that was the problem. Now it's about 50-50% in the world and 50% in the church. Something has gone drastically wrong in the church in respect to this matter. And I think a lot of it has to do with people rushing to marriage, not getting premarital counseling, not being prepared. And we live in a far more complex world than, we were, than, than our parents were living back those days. Most people weren't working. It was a one family. The, the wife stayed home and took care of the children, the daddy work, etc., etc. Now you've got a completely different situation. You've got two people working. When you get hardship, you've got her going into the office with people who are more attractive than you. Uh, the boss has the Mercedes. You're just dealing with a Datsun, you know. <laughs> uh, he has a, a four-bedroom four house. You are still in a, a, a two-bedroom, a two, two, you know. All of those things are things that weren't a problem before. So you've got to be uh, understand and discuss these kind of things before than 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 previously, and so I am I'm a caution anybody who has reservations on this matter. Don't rush into it. Uh, you've waited long enough. Wait a few more months uh, or whatever just to get this thing settled before you rush into it. You're listening to That's Truth. In this episode, we have eight minutes left, so hurry up to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message. Send it to 268-782-1454. Thank you very much to each of you who have corresponded with us this evening. You can also call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Maybe you're kind of on the board or on the fence and you're not sure whether you want to call. Let me encourage you. We are not here to argue with you. We are not here to belittle you. We are here to hear your question and then answer it from Scripture, from a biblical worldview. Pastor, we use that phrase sometimes on this program, but for the listener that just tuned in, what do we mean by a biblical worldview? A biblical review has to do with a Christian's philosophy of life. It has to do with his presuppositions that govern his conduct, his behavior, and his belief system. A biblical review would involve such things as the fall of man. We don't believe that man is perfect, that man is not born with a white page. Man is born with a sinful nature. That's a, that's one of the principles of a biblical review. A biblical review also would have to do with that believe in creation, that man is not an accident. Uh, he's not here by chance. He's here by design and by purpose. He bears the image of God. That'd be a second principle of biblical worldview. And of course, the biblical worldview would be that we take the Bible as the standard of belief and practice. So uh, we are governed by those biblical principles that would govern not only our religious life, but also our practical everyday life. And the Bible is very, very clear in how the believer should live. Uh, uh, that is, and of course, a biblical worldview is this, that man needs salvation. Uh, he cannot save himself. He cannot done it by a system of works, by joining the church or being confirmed or being baptized. He needs the power of the Holy Spirit to transform his life. It's called being born again. So we believe that man cannot change apart from 
biblical renewal through the Holy Spirit, through his faith and trust in Christ. And the biblical worldview, of course, means that um, this world has a purpose in it. There's meaning to life. There's meaning to this life. Uh, and all of those factors are, are taken into, into biblical review. We would believe also the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ, um, the rapture, the return, judgment, hell, all of that is a biblical worldview. So it's a very, very large and composite uh, uh, belief system, but it's basically a, a, a belief system that is governed by scriptural truth. So we're filtering everything through the context of Scripture. Correct. Do you have anything else you want to mention? There's one other verse that we should have looked at. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I think it's 12 or 13. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 says that they all might be damned. That they all might... No, that's 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2.12. Uh, stand, let's see, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because thou hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Holy Spirit and the belief of the truth. Yeah, that's the point there, that we are chosen. And we are, again, the word sanctified there, same word separated. Uh, you can't read the New Testament without understanding that God's purpose and design for the church is for holiness, that we be separate and distinct people uh, on planet Earth. That's, that's, what, that's the thing that's emphasized in that passage. So you've made the point that God's people should be separated people. But are there specific areas in which we should be separated? Yeah, I think if you're going to the Bible, um, we can probably divide separation into three uh, types or three forms or three areas, possibly four, but I'm just going to treat it uh, two of them under one heading. There's what we call moral separation. And this way the Bible calls us to separate from sin, and from worldliness. That's the moral aspect. But it's also doctrinal separation or what you call ecclesiastical separation. But God asks us to separate from people who teach false doctrine and any religious system that is an apostate away from him. We show you that as well. And then the third thing, that uh, third form, is what you call personal separation. This is where you separate from a, a believer. He is a believer. He believes in God. He even may even go to your same church. He holds, but he is living a lifestyle that is clearly uh, contrary to what God demands of the believer. From such a person, uh, God says you must separate and not have company with. So but couldn't actually, I win them back by showing them love? Well, you can show people love without um, associating too closely with them. As a matter of fact, the Bible said the reason why you don't do that is that they become ashamed, they become embarrassed, they begin to realize that you have your standards and you're holding the biblical standards and you're not going to compromise your standards to accommodate me. So there's a sense of, and then when they are being a, a good friend or be a, a church member for a long time and they're part of that particular group, uh, the fact that these people, God's people, are now separating from me because I'm living this kind of lifestyle, the Bible says it brings some kind of a shame and embarrassment. Because remember, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. He convicts the believer. And a person may act as though it doesn't matter. But he's truly saved and he knows that believers are separating from him for the right reason. There is that sense of uneasiness and that sense uh, of shame. Uh, I, I tell people this. When you're dealing with people, Nathan, whether you're dealing with a Christian or non-Christian, always remember this. A man's conscience is normally on your side. He may not 
say that he believes what you believe or he will give you all kinds of art but treat him as if he has a conscience because unless his conscience is seared and dead he knows what is right and what is wrong so all his pretense that he gives all this facade he gives deal with him as though he knows what he's doing is wrong or what he knows is right uh, that's a biblical principle so don't, don't, don't buy into and be intimidated by what, what, what the remarks that they make got about 30 seconds left but how do I determine if doctrine is something that I can it's just a, okay to set, if I need to if my difference of doctrine is enough to separate over, or if it's like pre-trib versus mid-trib, where we're we're both born again believers. Well, we, we've come to that. Maybe deal with apostasy, but clearly there are some things that, um, like the fundamentals, the deity of Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, His vicarious atonement, His virgin birth. Those are great essentials. There's things that are not essentials, but the great essentials we can't afford to negotiate on. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.